This ADN Politics Podcast is brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible. From the Anchorage Daily News, this is ADN Politics, a podcast navigating Alaska's changing and sometimes wild political landscape. I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. It was quite a week in Juneau. The Alaska legislature almost passed a budget in time for the regular session to end, but it didn't. So it went into a special session. And then after one day, it did. We have a budget. So today I'm catching up with ADN reporters Sean McGuire and Iris Samuels about how that happened. Sean, Iris, thank you for coming back to talk bright and early on Friday morning. How are you doing today? And I mean that for real. How are you doing? Iris? Covering the legislature is hard work, but it's also really fun. So I'm exhausted and ready to not talk to any politicians for a while. But I'm also really grateful that I've had the opportunity for the past couple weeks to closely observe and have conversations with the 60 people in Alaska who get a vote on the budget. There are only 60 of them. They're all in Juneau. And I got to be one of the few people with license to ask them the questions on my mind. And I take that responsibility seriously. And I also really enjoy it. John, how about you? Yeah, I'd echo what Iris said. It's fun, but it's also stressful. You kind of get swept up in the anxiety and the energy of it all. So the end of a session is kind of like the end of a marathon. You're kind of exhausted. You're happy you were there. You got to be part of it as a journalist. But yeah, it's tiring as well. And you just kind of need to take a breath after it's all done. Well, let's rewind to Wednesday night when for a hot minute, people were talking about the legislature passing a budget in the nick of time for the regular session to end. Iris, how did that almost happen? The Senate had the budget, and as of Wednesday, they had not yet passed a budget to the House for them to say yes or no on this bill. And so Wednesday began with the Senate not really certain on whether they would pass this budget to the House because they said that they needed some assurance from the House that the House would agree to their spending plan with no changes in order for them to agree to pass a budget before the end of the regular session. So the entire day, there were these closed door meetings. We knew that there were negotiations happening and we didn't know what the status of them were. There were a lot of bleak expressions in the Capitol, which led us to believe that the odds were really slim. And finally, the Senate convened their floor session and around 6 p.m. they passed the budget. We were all really surprised. And there was this moment where we thought, wow, maybe they did finally reach an agreement. But a few hours later, when the House convened, they decided to adjourn without passing the budget. So around 10 p.m. that night, Sean and I were writing a story about how the session had ended and there was no agreement on a spending plan for the next fiscal year. Sean, can you explain why did the Senate hang on to their spending plan for so long? So we heard some things about, oh, they needed to hear what capital projects the House wanted, things like that. But the reality is the Senate held on to the budget for so long to put pressure on the House. The legislature operates best when there are deadlines. Things just don't pass unless there's a time pressure that's forcing lawmakers to make decisions. So the end of a 
legislative session is a great way to make legislators take action, pass budgets, pass bills, and um, pushing it right up to the wire makes it more likely that these big decisions will get made because legislators want to go home. They want to get out of there. There's this July 1st deadline to get a budget passed. That's when the fiscal year starts. And if a budget's not in place, there'd be a state government shutdown. So there's a looming deadline. But yeah, the Senate held on to the budget to try and pressure the House into essentially passing the Senate's budget. Iris, what was it about the Senate's version of the budget that wasn't working for the House all this time? So the one thing you need to understand is what typically happens by the final days of the legislative session. Typically, the House passes their version of an operating budget to the Senate. The Senate then considers that operating budget. They make changes. They send it back to the House. Now, typically, in almost every single year, the House votes against that plan by the Senate. And then they appoint what's called a conference committee. A conference committee is where a couple members from the Senate, a couple members from the House get together in a room and they try to reach agreement on the areas where the House and Senate's versions of the bills are different. But when the Senate chose not to send the bill to the House because they didn't have this agreement with the House, that precluded the option of having this kind of conference committee. And that in itself was very upsetting to some members of the House because they felt like they were being robbed of their portion of the negotiating process. They were given this just take it or leave it version of the process rather than one where they could be fully participating in reaching a final agreement. But maybe more importantly, the thing that the House was really upset about was the size of the permanent fund dividend. In the House's version of the budget that they passed in April, there was a $2,700 dividend. And the Senate's version of the budget had a $1,300 dividend. That's the one that eventually the House ended up agreeing with. But for weeks, the House was saying that that was not a large enough dividend for them. The problem with the House's version of the dividend is that they didn't have a way to pay for it. Their version of the dividend would have required drawing hundreds of millions of dollars from state savings, and that was just a non-starter for the Senate. So those were the two major areas of disagreement between the House and Senate. It was on the process itself and then on whether or not to draw from savings and whether or not to have this very large dividend. Sean, where was the governor in all of this tension between the House and the Senate? So he really has not been appearing very much publicly. We do know on the second to last day of the session that he convened this late night meeting between House and Senate members to try and negotiate a budget deal. But then we know on the final day of the legislative session, he left. Do you know he went off on a spring bear hunt, a charity bear hunt, a spokesperson told me, uh, which is pretty unusual. All the time I've been covering the legislature, the governor will be there. They have a press conference, typically, where they talk about the budget, their thoughts on it, things like that. And the governor, of course, plays an important role in the budgeting process. He's got a veto pen, so he'll be able to strip back the budget. He could also veto the entire budget. He could send them back into a special session if he didn't like it. We really don't know what his reaction is to this budget because we don't know if he even knows a budget has passed. I don't know the details of this spring bear hunt, if he's still out there, if he's got cell service, 
So we haven't heard anything at all from the governor's office about the budget, about the deal that was reached as of Friday morning. Well, presumably, if and when he gets his bear or not, we'll figure that out. But going back to the move between the House and the Senate, Iris, you know, in one of your stories, a House member called it a hostage situation. And I'm curious, was it really that bad? So there are definitely a lot of House members who were just furious with how the Senate was treating the House. Some people said that it was really as if the House was being treated as an advisory committee rather than like a chamber with equal footing to that of the Senate. But the reality is that these are people and they all drink at the same bars and they all live in this one small town for a few months getting to see each other day after day, and a lot of them are friends. So it's unclear if this is the type of, quote, hostage situation that is going to have a lasting impact on the relationships between House members and Senate members, or if this was really a tactical maneuver by the Senate that will be seen as such moving forward. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Throughout the legislature's negotiations over the budget this year, I'd like to hear from both of you about some lawmakers who have been key players in these talks. Uh, Iris, let's start with you there. So the usual suspects for key players are the leadership members in both the House and Senate. In the Senate, there are some very experienced people holding those leadership positions. That includes Gary Stevens, a Kodiak Republican, who is the Senate president, and then One of the most important people in the Senate is actually Burt Stedman. He is a Sitka Republican and he co-chairs the Finance Committee. And he kind of has a reputation for being someone who understands the process of crafting a budget better than most people in the building. And so he can really manipulate the process to get what he wants and to get his priorities and make sure that things that he doesn't want don't end up in the budget. He's kind of embraced that reputation that he has, and he just wields it. And he knows that he likely will not have any repercussions in future elections. This is not something that his voters will punish him for. On the House side, there was a lot of difference between many of the freshman members and then the more experienced members who occupy the leadership positions. So in leadership positions, you have people like Kathy Tilton. She is a Wasilla Republican who's been in the legislature for a while, but in some ways she's more conservative than the newer members of her caucus. Sean, I'm curious, who do you see as key players in these talks that have been happening? Yeah, so all the people Iris mentioned, clearly the people at the negotiating table who were making these big decisions, and as she mentioned about people like Stedman, who understands the political process as well as the budget-making process and understands how to squeeze legislators into making decisions that he likes. There are people like that. Uh, Senator Bill Wilikowski was also one who we heard was a key player. He's an Anchorage Democrat uh, senator. He was there at the table, this negotiating table with the governor. Representative Delana Johnson, who manages the operating budget in the House, was there from the House side. And she was joined by representatives Mike Cronk, a Republican from Toke, and then Josiah Pakatakanukiavik, Independent. And those guys were the ones who kind of hammered out this 
tentative framework for a deal that was then brought back to the caucuses on the second to last day of the session to try and see if something could be worked out before the end of the session, a budget deal could be passed to avoid the need for a special session. So I'm curious, how do you report on these negotiations as they're happening? I mean, I kind of picture you both waiting outside these closed-door meetings and then chasing people down for clues. What does it actually look like? It's a little bit of just that. We spent a lot of the past couple days sitting on a bench that is the midway point between the House chamber and the Senate chamber. And from that bench, you can see the House speaker's offices where a lot of these closed door negotiations were happening. And we were watching as Senate members House members were walking in and out of that office. And as they walked past us, we'd ask them, so how are things going? And sometimes they'd smile, sometimes they'd grimace, sometimes they'd say half a sentence. Sometimes it was just the tone of the voice in which they said that sentence that told us if there was progress. So that's one element of how we track these closed-door negotiations. Sean, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, it's a world of whisper and rumor. You know, you you hear these things, you hear little snippets and tidbits from one lawmaker and then check it with another one. And it's the reason why, for the public's perspective and the press's perspective, we like open-door meetings where we can actually be in there and see these decisions because we don't know what handshake deals might be going on. We don't know what legislators are saying when they know they aren't being overheard from the press. So... Yeah, it's it's tricky, but it's a lot of waiting around and um, hoping you can get clues about what's going on and speak to staffers who are in the know, who hear the unvarnished truth from lawmakers. And you're trying to pick up on these little clues and get sources. But yeah, it, it, it can be tricky. And it's you got to be patient because there's a lot of waiting. All right. Well, let's go back to Wednesday, where ultimately things broke down and the House did not pass a budget. Sean, what went wrong? So the Senate passed the budget around six o'clock on the final day of the legislative session. So that gave the House less than around six hours to approve the budget or go into special session. They basically had to take it or leave it. Yes or no. That's the option they had. There is a procedural impediment, though, that we saw where a budget bill has to sit on legislators' desks for 24 hours before a vote can take place. Now, two-thirds of legislators can waive that rule, and it looked like there was going to be that vote in the House, and we were thinking, oh, man, this could be really close. Is there going to be 27 House members who are going to vote to waive this 24-hour rule, allow the budget to get voted on on the final day of the session, get the deal done. And ultimately, there was a break before that vote happened. The House majority, the Republican-led majority left. They spoke again behind closed doors and then came out. They went back on the floor and we were thinking, okay, what's going to happen now? And then they adjourned. They adjourned without passing a budget. The session ended. And within minutes, Lieutenant Governor Nancy Dahlstrom walked down with a proclamation signed by Governor Dunleavy that called us for a special session to start at 10 a.m. on Thursday. So the budget deal didn't happen within the regular session. The special session started and we were thinking we're probably going to be here for a month because a 30-day session typically does not result in action until the third week. All right. Well, let's take a quick break there. And when we're back, we'll talk about how lawmakers did get to a deal. 
At Steam.Coffee, we're proud to support great journalism, and we're proud of our pursuit of great coffee. We search the world for the finest raw materials and then roast them to perfection at our Anchorage headquarters, all with one thing in mind, the finest coffee possible in your cup. Come visit us at either of our Anchorage cafes or online at steamdot.com. We're back with ADN Politics talking about the newly passed state budget with Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire and Juno. So after the legislature almost but doesn't quite pass a budget during the regular session this week, the governor immediately called them back into this special session. And I want to stop here and for people who don't follow the legislature super closely, what is the big deal about going into a special session? We seem to do it a lot in Alaska. So the problem with not getting a budget by the deadline for the regular session, which is on the 121st day of the regular session, is that then you get closer and closer to a potential state government shutdown. The end of the fiscal year in Alaska is June 30th. The new fiscal year starts July 31st. And that means that if there is no budget by July 31st, then there is a government shutdown. Now, we've never had one in this state. So it's hard to tell exactly what the ramifications would be. But even if we don't get to a shutdown, the potential impacts start to have real world ramifications as you get closer to the deadline. And one of those is, for example, certain state employees are told, potentially, you may not have a job or we may not be able to pay you starting in a few weeks. And because a lot of teachers' salaries are dependent on state funding, school teachers are one of the prime examples of that happening. And if there isn't a budget within a few weeks of that deadline for the special session, some teachers start to get what's called pink slips that tell them, be prepared, you may not have a job soon. And that can be very scary, both for the teachers, of course, but also for parents and for children. And a lot of people in Alaska are either parents or children. So that is a main ramification. But there are also other potential potential issues that could arise if there is a state government shutdown that we can't even fathom because we haven't gone through one. But as we get closer, those concerns start to become more real for a lot of Alaskans. The other element is that special sessions cost money. The last time there was a 30-day special session in 2021, right after the regular session when they couldn't pass a budget, that special session cost $700,000. Now, depending who you talk to, that's either a lot of money or a little bit of money. But the fact of the matter is it becomes frustrating for constituents who say to themselves, these people should be able to come to agreement on the one thing they are constitutionally required to agree upon. And if they can't, that's money that is government money. That's money that could be spent on something else. Okay. So it is Thursday, May 18th. A special session is called starting at 10 a.m. Everyone comes to the Capitol. Sean, what do you start seeing and what's the mood like in the building? Yeah, everyone was pretty miserable. Legislators, staff, no one wanted to be there. There was frustration with that. There were a lot of these marathon closed-door meetings that went on throughout the day. So you would see legislators come out, one would run into another one's office, they'd be going back and forth. But it was very quiet in the Capitol on the first day of the special session, and also on the last day of the regular session, which is usually 
frenetic in the state capital. Usually there's staff running around, there's a flurry of bills passing, there's legislators everywhere, there's lobbyists on the second floor where the House and Senate are. There's kind of this party atmosphere. But on the final day of the legislative session, it was deathly quiet in the capital. All this, all the work was going on behind closed doors. So we, sitting in the capital hallways, were watching as cruise ship passengers outnumbered legislators and staff in the public spaces of the capital. So it was very weird. It was just quiet. And I was operating under the impression that nothing was going to happen for, for weeks because that is historically what has happened during special session. It's usually only until the third week that you start seeing decisions get made. So, yeah, it was it was pretty heavy, heavy mood, I'd describe it, in this uh, on the first day of the special session. All right, Iris. So when did you start to feel like a deal was coming together and, and what were the clues? As we were sitting on that bench I described earlier between the House and Senate sides of the building, as lawmakers passed us, they would jokingly say, do you see white smoke yet? As if we were waiting for them to finally reach agreement and physically see the manifestation of this agreement. But eventually in the afternoon hours, we saw people leaving the speaker's office where these meetings were being held and they were smiling. We saw some thumbs up and we were all kind of looking at each other saying, is this that white smoke? Is this really the agreement? Could it possibly be that they have actually agreed on something after all these closed door meetings? And finally, around 5 p.m., the House gaveled in for their floor session the first time that day. And they took the budget and returned it to the Senate. So rather than voting on it, they made a motion to take this budget that the Senate had already passed and return it back to them. And that was this sign that there was some kind of agreement reached that would include the Senate taking action with their spending plan before the House voted on it. Got it. And then, of course, it did all come together. The legislature passed the budget. And so... How did that happen? What what changes were ultimately made to the House decided to pass this budget? So when the Senate got the budget back from the House, they made an amendment to it that added $34 million in capital projects. Those projects were distributed between mostly the districts of key House majority members who could potentially vote for the budget. So we saw, for example, big projects going to Wasilla and Palmer and Dillingham. And those are districts where key members of the majority live. And they passed this amendment that included the $34 million in projects. They sent the budget back to the House. The House came together. We expected a long floor session where each of them would give a long explanation for why they would choose to vote for or against this budget. That is typically what House members tend to do. But it happened very quickly. So the House brought the budget to a vote, and it passed 26 to 14. And among those 26 members who voted in favor of the budget, 16 of them were members of the minority. And that's mostly Democrats, some independents, one Republican. That minority became very important in getting this budget across. And then 10 members of the majority joined them. And again, some of those people who joined them were people who got key projects added to the budget in their districts. 
So given what happened, Sean, I'm curious, what is the future of the current House majority? Yeah, it's a good question. The House majority is really leaving Juno like a whipped dog. They were completely beaten by the Senate. It was basically the Senate's budget that the House passed. And the big question is, what is going to happen to the House majority when it convenes next year? I spoke to some of its members and they were really frustrated. I spoke to Representative Justin Ruffridge, who's a freshman who voted against the deal, and he was saying that he didn't know what the House majority stood for. Was it fiscal conservatism? Was it good policy? Was it education? He said it kind of seems like it's none of that. And he said he was frustrated. He felt like he was being bought by the Senate to approve the budget that they wanted. So there seems to be a lot of dissension within the ranks in the House majority. There's these big divides between the more right-leaning and left-leaning factions within there. There's personality divides. And the House majority, when it started, when it formed, it didn't really have any key priorities. It didn't have these principles that it was organising around, these things that it could be working towards. And uh, that really showed. They didn't really have a negotiating position with the Senate. And I can tell you, I've never seen this, but after the session adjourned yesterday and the deal was done, we were speaking to House majority leadership and they were saying, well, we're going to be a lot better next year. We've learned a lot this year. We're going to be a lot sharper. We're going to be a lot smarter. And that was pretty telling. I mean, they were effectively demolished by the Senate. Iris, I'm curious, to what extent did a scheduled Alaska Airlines flight out of Juneau on Thursday night and the particularly good weather influence the passage of this year's budget? I don't know if it was a particular flight, but there was definitely an element of the fact that lawmakers come to Juneau thinking they're going to leave after four months. They don't think they're going to be here for five months or six months, and they have plans. They might have a vacation planned. They might need to go back to their business. They might need to go back to their families. And being here for an extra month can be something between extremely inconvenient to downright personally expensive for some of these people. Some of them have nowhere to live. We've heard that in past special sessions, lawmakers resort to living in their offices because it is tourist season here in Juneau and it's very hard to find housing. And I think that the fact that we had this gorgeous weather, extremely warm, beautiful blue skies was this reminder that summer is coming and it may be extremely inconvenient to be here rather than the other parts of this beautiful state during these warm months when a lot of people have other things to do. Sean, what are some of the top line things we should know about this year's budget? So this budget is basically the governor's budget that was introduced or proposed back in December, but there are some changes. So the permanent fund dividend that was approved is around $1,300, but there's an interesting caveat that was part of this final budget deal in that if the price of oil averages above projections made in March over the next fiscal year, Alaskans could receive an energy relief check of up to $500 on top of next year's dividend. So basically, if we have some unanticipated revenue from higher oil prices, some of that will go towards potentially a check for Alaskans on top of the PFD, and that would then boost the PFD effectively. The other big thing is school funding. So this was a big priority. We heard for a lot of lawmakers coming in, 
And the legislature was able to approve a $680 boost to the base student allocation. That's a state's per student funding formula. But the important point is that's only for the next fiscal year. It's only temporary. It won't be repeated again. But it is still important. We heard from the Senate that they were saying this is historic. It's the largest single year boost for education outside of the normal school funding formula. So it's potentially a big deal. We have heard from school districts some frustration about one-time funding because it's hard then to rely on that for future years. You know, if you hired a lot of teachers, for example, assuming that the funding is going to be the same next year, you could be in a lot of trouble if the legislature doesn't approve the same amount of school funding next year. So that, though, is a big piece of this budget and was a big win from the Senate's perspective, able being able to get this extra school funding. Iris, from where you stand, how productive was this year's legislative session overall? So it's worth remembering that the first regular session of a two-year cycle is less productive typically than the second one because the legislation that isn't passed at the end of this session doesn't die. It can be revived exactly the same position where it ended this year, next year. But even given that this session did not see a lot of major legislation move, and I think that a big part of that is the disagreements over the size of the dividend and the budget more broadly that made it really difficult for lawmakers to reach agreement on other issues, in particular priorities for either the House or Senate. On the Senate side, as Sean mentioned, one of the key issues was a permanent increase to public school funding. And from the get-go, a lot of them were saying that they really wanted to get that permanent increase this year, not wait until next year. And eventually, they did not succeed in doing that. So we're going to have to see them spending a lot of political capital again next year trying to get that across. On the House side, one of the things that we heard from some conservative lawmakers was their desire to see a tighter spending cap come across and other elements of a potential fiscal plan. But eventually, none of those came to a House vote. None of those were even brought to the floor, let alone considered by the Senate. So we saw very little major legislation come across this year. And we also didn't see a lot of smaller bills come across. Often specific lawmakers have specific issues that are brought to them by certain constituents. And a lot of those became the victims of this final budget battle because there was so much focus on the budget that you couldn't get those bills across. So it'll be interesting to see next year how much of these priorities are brought back and how much time lawmakers have to spend again bringing back these issues that they spent several months debating this year. All right. Well, to wrap up, I want to hear your big takeaways from this year's session. Sean, let's start with you. So at the beginning of the session, we thought that there'd be a very interesting dynamic between this very experienced Senate and then this much younger and less experienced House, that almost half of the House are freshmen. And we were wondering how it was going to work with those two sides essentially battling against each other. Well, the big takeaway is that the Senate won, and it wasn't even close. The Senate got virtually everything it wanted out of the budget, and the House left 
losing effectively to the Senate. It's it's not a game, but it's treated a lot like that. Effectively, the centrists, the left-leaning legislators got what they wanted out of the budget in a lot of instances, and the Republicans, particularly the conservative Republicans, did not. An interesting thing as well is that probably the most substantial bill, potentially the most consequential bill we'll have to see, is to do with carbon credits, which is not what I would have expected at the beginning of the session. This was the this governor's idea to sell carbon credits off forested land. And the idea is that it would potentially create billions of dollars of new revenue for the state. In the session, at the beginning of the session and throughout the session, I thought that wasn't going to happen this year. Speaking to key legislators who were saying, we need time to vet this. Uh, they were talking about hiring a consultant to look at this to see whether the numbers penciled out, whether this would work, whether it was a good idea, whether land might get locked up and not be available for other sorts of development like logging and uh, mining. But apparently their concerns were answered by the administration and they passed this bill. So it'd be really interesting to see if in the next couple of years, this is something that produces significant new revenue for Alaska or maybe it doesn't. We really don't know. But that could potentially be quite a significant thing for Alaska's budget going forward. But yeah, as Iris was saying, generally, the session was not productive at all. All right, Iris, what are your final thoughts? I've been thinking a lot about this House majority, and we started this session with no majority in the House. The House hadn't organized. And then on the second day of the session, they announced that there would be this mostly Republican majority along with the Bush caucus. So four legislators that represent parts of rural Alaska, and two of those are Democrats, two of those are independents. And the question from the very beginning was, what binds these lawmakers together? What is their common denominator? What is the thing that they all agree on fighting for? And from the get-go, there was no answer. And we really never got a clear sense of whether there truly was something that all these lawmakers could agree on. And that was in sharp contrast to the Senate's bipartisan majority, which has nine Democrats, eight Republicans, and they all agree that their top priorities are permanently increasing education funding and then also reforming the pension plan for public employees in Alaska. And that's part of an effort to stem the tide of out-migration from this state. So you have one caucus, one majority caucus with the, this clear agenda. And that provides this contrast to the House where we just didn't have that. And I think that, as Sean said earlier, that really played into their inability to bargain effectively with the Senate because they didn't have a clear position to fight for. So I'll be really interested to see if during this interim, they actually are able to come up with a plan that all the 23 members of the House majority can agree on. And if they can't, I think we'll see a similar dynamic playing out next year where the House minority has essentially learned their power in being able to be key players in getting a budget across. All right. Well, let's end there. Thank you both for being here and for all your long hours and hard work these past few weeks. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
Thanks for listening to ADN Politics. We'll be taking a break for a few weeks and coming back with new episodes in June. You can subscribe to the show in whichever podcast app you're listening to right now. You can keep up with the rest of our coverage on ADN.com. And you can subscribe to ADN there, which is the best way to support our work, including this show. Thanks to our guests today, ADN reporters Iris Samuels and Sean McGuire. This episode was produced by Evan Phillips and Zachariah Hughes. Evan Phillips makes our music. David Hewlin is our editor. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Harbaugh. See you next time. Thanks for listening. This episode of ADN Politics was brought to you by Steam.Coffee, where we source, roast, and present the finest coffees possible.